Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. Today's reading is from Genesis 6, 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them, destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. It's breadth 50 cubits and it's height 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it lower, make make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds and the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Thanks so much, Leslie, and thanks, Todd, for the work that you and our uh, deacons and deaconesses are doing uh, to care for us uh, as a church during this time. You know, one of my favorite feelings in the world uh, is and always has been uh, standing outside uh, covered and under shelter when a rainstorm is coming in. Uh, I love it now. I'll still do it. Um, but I really remember as a kid, uh, the feeling that I had sitting out on a porch, I, I very particularly remember uh, sitting out by the beach, sitting uh, in a covered porch, watching the storm come in off the ocean. While the rain poured and the thunder cracked all around me, I would feel uh, so small and vulnerable, and yet also sheltered and protected, uh, knowing that no matter what was going on out there, I was safe in the shelter. I'll even still today, I mean, our, our front porch right over there is, I don't know, four feet by four feet. It's quite small. Uh, but still, even when a hurricane's coming in, I'll go stand out there and just watch the wind blow down the street and feel it all around me. And somehow that uh, is not a threatening, but a comforting feeling to me. The feeling that while everything around me is chaos, that I am safe and sheltered uh, in a sturdy place. And the story that we begin today, this is going to be the first of several uh, weeks in the Noah story in Genesis. 
is really a story about how you can find shelter and safety uh, in the midst of the chaos of this world. While all was falling apart around Noah, both in the natural world as well as in the moral world of his contemporaries, God sheltered Noah in a safe place. He was dry and safe through the storm and the flood. He was held in God's kindness and his mercy and his compassion, while everything around him was surrounded by chaos and sin and judgment. Friends, don't you wish that you could know that you are safe and secure? Don't you wish that you could know that while there's chaos all around you, right? While there's health-based chaos with the coronavirus and anxiety about our health, while there's financial and economic chaos, perhaps chaos in your work, while maybe as you've brought your uh, children in from home, uh, in from school, there's chaos in your home as you try to all of a sudden take on work and home and school all in one place. Maybe there's an inner chaos within you. Maybe as you wrestle with thoughts of fear or anxiety, what's going to happen to us? What's going to happen to me? Wouldn't you love to know that in the midst of all that raging storm, that you are safe, that you're secure, that you're sheltered in the hands of God? And well, that's what uh, the, the Noah story invites us to consider, that we, like Noah, can come within God's sheltering care. Now, the chaos of Noah's time was absolute moral corruption and violence, right? We've seen, if you've been tracking with us through Genesis, that from the world that was created in love by God and for God, man and woman created to live in harmony with God and one another, we've seen that since sin entered into their world, that, that things have been going from bad to worse. Cast out of the Garden of Eden, they were left to live their life outside of God's sheltering presence. We saw the first murder as Cain uh, slayed his brother Abel. We saw uh, the spiraling nature uh, of the disorder of the world as Lamech, uh, the seventh generation after Cain and Abel, uh, is, is he bragged about taking vengeance and murdering someone who had insulted him and claiming that he would take even greater vengeance on anyone who harmed him. And then last week, we saw the continuing spiral of the corruption of the world. So the world all around Noah was chaotic. It was a world where people were out to get one another, where people, instead of living in harmony with one another, lived bent on violence towards one another, towards taking what they wanted at any cost. And yet, in the midst of that world, we learn of Noah in verse 7, uh, that Noah was a righteous man blameless in his generation, Noah walked with God. So that Noah, even in the midst of, of that world, he walked with God instead of walking in the way that his neighbors walked and the ways that his contemporaries walked. He was an island in some ways of faithfulness and love and righteousness uh, in a corrupt world. And so Noah's, uh, the corruption and chaos of Noah's world was moral. But we learn that there was a bigger problem a bigger danger uh, that they were facing, even than the violence of their neighbors. But the ultimate threat that they were facing was actually the justice and judgment of God himself. God says uh, to them in verse 13, God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, 
for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Now, these are hard words uh, for us to hear and hard words for us to understand. Right? We'll never, I don't think, understand why God would do something like this, destroying all life on earth, except for Noah and his family and one of, every, one of each gender of every living thing. Why he would do this, unless we understand two things. Uh, one, God's love for the world. And two, the gravity of sin. Right? The gravity of sin uh, tells us, what we see here, is that the world is not just a little bit broken, right? The world is not just uh, a little bit frayed around the edges, but that the world is broken. We, you and me, are broken at our core, right? We tend to, when human beings talk about how to make the world better, we tend to offer fairly superficial solutions to what we believe are superficial problems. We tend to approach our problems like if we're given enough time with our own resources, we can figure out how to make things better, right? Given enough time, we'll figure out how to, to maneuver our political system so that we have righteous rulers and justice in the earth. Given enough time, we'll perfect our economic system so there's economic justice and all people can do well in the world. Given enough technological time for innovation, we can solve the problems of healthcare. We can solve the problems uh, that we face as a culture and as a world. And yet God says here, what he shows us in his actions here, is it, no, 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 the world doesn't just need a little bit of renovation. It doesn't just need a little bit of renewal. It actually needs to be made new. It needs to be reborn and remade by God's own hands. And these, this action of God also shows us something about God's love for the world. That God loves the, he made this world in love. He made it by his own hands. He made it by his own wisdom. He made it for himself. He made each one of us to live in communion with him. He made us to live in harmony with one another. And that when the world started to drift, when the world started to go away from God and his design, he didn't just leave it to itself. He didn't just say, okay, well, sorry. Sorry that things have gone so poorly. No, he took matters into his own hands and he said, I have to fix, I have to make new this world that's wandered from me. And so he acts. He acts in, in a way that, that speaks of his mercy, protecting life, ensuring that life would go on. And he acts in judgment. He acts in judging uh, the world and its waywardness. Now, it's somewhat inevitable during a time like this, during a time uh, where we're going through all that we're going through as a nation, as a church, as a world. Uh, it's somewhat inevitable that you will hear talk of divine judgment. Right. We're, we're used to hearing it from certain corners. Right. It doesn't surprise us when a certain fringe of the Christian right uh, talks about uh, the the things that we suffer in this world, whether they be earthquakes or hurricanes or pandemics and tries to assign a reason for them, tries to say that this this suffering is clearly God's judgment for some reason, usually for somebody else's sin. Right? It's usually a, a judgment identified with a sin that's somebody else's fault out there. So we're used to hearing some voices speculate about whether or not the suffering of this world is the judgment of God. What's more shocking and interesting uh, is when agnostics and atheists begin to talk about divine judgment or about the judgment of the world. Uh, 
uh, the actress and activist Jamila Jamil. She's uh, uh, one of the best friends in The Good Place, if you watch that show. She tweeted out this week, I can't help but wonder if this virus is the clapback from Mother Nature we were waiting for. She wants us to stop moving and consuming and burning, or she's going to mess us all up. Right? All of us, I think, uh, whether we profess to be Christians, uh, whether we profess some other religious faith, or whether we profess no faith at all, all of us, I think, live with this awareness, or maybe it's this fear, that our lives are accountable towards some type of higher power. That whether it be God or Mother Nature or the universe or the laws of karma, that somehow the lives that we lead in this world are morally accountable that the scoreboard uh, will be leveled in some way. And we live with this fear that there's something in us that isn't quite what it should be. We know that the world isn't quite what it should be. We know that it's broken in some fundamental ways. And we fear that we too are not like we should be. I was recently uh, on a road trip uh, driving back to Jacksonville and I remember passing a highway patrolman sitting off to the side and instinctively slamming on the brakes, not slamming on, but slowing down considerably. And I wasn't even speeding at the time. And yet there's something about feeling like you're being watched, that there's somebody who's keeping track that makes you go, oh no, I must be wrong. And all of us, or many of us live with this kind of fear towards the universe that someday all that's not right in us will be called into account. And now, a word about divine judgment as it relates to the coronavirus. Uh, it would be presumptuous to assume uh, and foolish to assume that we can draw causation between individual human sins, acts that people have done, and the pain of this world. Right? This is, this is one instance in the Bible where, where God reveals that his judgment is present because of concrete actions, sins of human beings. There's a few other isolated places where that comes. Uh, the exile of Israel into Babylon comes to mind. But whenever that's the case, a concrete reason is given by divine revelation. And he says, because of this, I'm going to do this. But far more often what we see in the scriptures is the general sense that because of human sin in general, the world is not as it should be. Right, Paul tells us in Romans that the entire earth groans awaiting redemption. So that things like fires and pandemics and earthquakes and cancer and all of the sufferings of this life, they're, be, they're a function of living in a broken world, but they're not necessarily because of individual sins or transgressions. And we shouldn't presume to pry into God's mind to figure these things out. Um, more often than not, uh, in the Bible, when these things are dealt with, we get things like in Luke 13, where Jesus asks, were those 18 who died when the, when the tower of Siloam fell on them? Do you think they were more guilty than all of the others living in Jerusalem? Right? Do we think that those who suffer, those who get sick, those who lose their homes in a hurricane, those who uh, suffer in some particular way, are any worse off in their inner life than anyone else? No, we're all broken, all living out our lives in the effects of the fall. And so divine judgment is not the right category uh, to think through what's going on in our world or going on in our lives through this pandemic. A more helpful uh, biblical category is the category of trial or testing. 
a ton of the Bible speaks about the testings that we go through in our lives, the, the trials that we go through that test and reveal our character. And as modern American Christians, if we're honest, uh, half the time we don't know what to do with those passages. We read about the Christian life as a trial or as a test, and we go, hey, my, things don't seem all that, like, all that tough of a test right now. We're comfortable, we're wealthy, our children are well-educated, uh, we have jobs that we go out to do. And so oftentimes we have a hard time identifying uh, with this theme in the scriptures that God tests our faith through the circumstances of our lives. Testing is not always pleasant, right? Think about when you were uh, in school getting ready for a test. The test may not be pleasant, but what a test does is it reveals what you know. It reveals the character of your education and your preparedness and the trials and tests uh, of, our, of our Christian life do the same. They reveal us. They reveal the depth of our character. They reveal the nature of our faith. And friends, this is a test. It is a trial. It is a time where our character will be revealed. It's a time where we'll realize whether we trust God and follow him when things are good or also in times when things are not good. It'll reveal to us uh, whether or not uh, we are as kind and loving as, and patient as we like to think we are when you're stuck in your home with your family for weeks on end. It'll try and test that fruit of patience. It'll try and test the bonds of your love and community and fellowship with one another and with your neighbors. As, as friendships will no longer come as easily and we have to work towards them. And friends, it'll also reveal and test something about the nature of our church and the character of our church, right? Is the church uh, built on the gathered worship services and the gifts of a few people? Or is it a community that's built in love? A community that sticks with one another, that nurtures one another, that helps one another, that serves one another and our neighbors. Who will we be revealed to be? And so during this test, this time of trial, it is normal and natural for us to realize our own mortality. For us to realize the fact that our lives are accountable to God. If this isn't a specific act of divine judgment, it is a time of reminding of us that our lives are accountable for, before God. We're frail. And one day we will appear before God to give an account of ourselves. One day we will face some form of judgment. And so, in the face of our sin and the sin of the world, in face of the reality of divine judgment, we need a shelter. We need a place to hide, a place to know that we're safe and secure, a place to know that while the world around us rages, while God's judgment is a reality, that we have a certain shelter. And now God uh, shelters Noah by giving him this advance warning of the flood to come, giving him instructions for how to build an ark that will keep him and his family and the livestock safe. But more than that, in verse 18, God says to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. 
And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. God says, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. Really, uh, the, the author of Genesis very intentionally draws a parallel between Noah and Adam. Right, that just as Adam and Eve were the pair that were to be the, the fountain of all humanity, that Adam and Eve were to live in obedience and covenant with God, and that through them he would fill and populate the earth, he would name the animals, they, all of that. That here God says, no, Noah, you are to be a new Adam. I'm going to be in covenant with you. And as Adam was the start of the first creation, you're going to be the start, the head of a new creation. And you're going to live in this special covenant, promised love relationship with God. God enters into covenant with Noah. This is going to be a key theme in the scriptures. This is the first place that the word covenant appears in the Bible. And what it means is a covenant love is a love that can be counted on. A love uh, like the love that a husband and wife pledge to one another at their wedding. Right, a love that's not subject to how one or the other spouse is performing or acting. A love that's not just based on what one can get out of it, but is rooted in a promise and a commitment. God says, I'm making that kind of covenant, that kind of committed love with you, Noah. If you will live and walk with me as a faithful man, as a faithful family. Right, this is showing uh, Noah to be that seed of the woman that was talked about in Genesis chapter 3, that we saw, remember, uh, God said to Adam and Eve that uh, the serpent was going to strike at your heel, but your, your seed will crush his head. And we see that go through Abel and then to Seth and now to Noah. But now the problem with Noah, like the problem with each and every one of us, is that Noah's righteousness wasn't all that righteous. Uh, that Noah's goodness wasn't all that good. Right. And we, we know that we know that we can dress it up for a little bit. We can if you catch me on the right day in just the right light, I can convince you that I'm a decent person. But my goodness isn't all that good when it's tested. My righteousness isn't all that righteous. When no one's looking. And neither is Noah's. This man who even compared to his, you know, if you're just comparing him to his contemporaries, he was pretty good. Right, and we can all think of people that if we compare ourselves to the right subset, we, we look all right. And yet Noah, just uh, almost as soon as Noah and his family step off the ark, we're going to see a story of Noah stumbling around drunk and naked in front of his family. That doesn't sound all that righteous. And really, this is the story of the Bible. How will God show this faithful love how will he enter into covenant with humanity when all of the people that he invites to live into that relationship with him are not all that obedient, are not all that loving, are not all that righteous? Right? Noah is the first of these, uh, of these covenant partners of God. I guess Adam's first and then Noah of covenant partners that, that fall short. Right? We're going to see Abraham fall short as God invites him into covenant. Just a few pages later, uh, Abraham is going to be lying to Pharaoh about whether or not his wife is his sister in order to save his own skin. Not all that righteous. Right? When God calls the people of Israel to be his people, under Moses' leadership, we're going to see that they're not all that righteous. Before they even receive the Ten Commandments, they're worshiping an idol. 
David, the great king after God's own heart, the one who has promised an everlasting kingdom and dominion, is a murderer and an adulterer. And so this is, this sets the stage for what is so stunning and amazing about what the New Testament tells us is true of Jesus. That Jesus isn't just another in a long line of human covenant partners of God. He's not just another righteous man who sought to live in covenant with God, but that in Jesus, God has actually taken up both halves of the covenant. That he's made promises, his divine promises of love and faithfulness. And in Jesus, he's actually also lived out a perfect, faithful human response. So that when Jesus believes God, when Jesus follows God, when Jesus loves his neighbor, when Jesus loves his God, that he's doing those things not just as an example for us of what it might look like for us to be more faithful, but he's doing that for us and as us. So that when God looks at us, he doesn't see us. He doesn't see my faulty righteousness. He doesn't see the time that I lost my temper with my kids. He doesn't see uh, the time that I... Uh, that I blew it uh, in my marriage. He doesn't see uh, all of the unrighteousness that Paul tells us in our own lives is like filthy rags. But he sees the perfectly faithful life of Jesus. And that faithful life, that perfect, righteous, faithful life becomes for us an ark like the ark was for Noah. We can hide in the shelter of Jesus's perfect life, his perfect love, his perfect righteousness, and know that there, held in that place, we are safe. Paul can tell us that his life is hid with God in Christ, safe, secure, in the midst of all that this world brings. We see in 1 Peter chapter 3, an amazing uh, way that Peter brings the sto story of Noah uh, to apply to his people uh, that he's writing to. He says, God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter says there is he says that the world through the waters of judgment came out new through Noah and through his family in the ark. And he says that baptism works the same way in our lives. That baptized into Christ, we die to an old world. We die to an old way of life. And we're reborn through those waters into a new identity, a new life safe and secure in this world, hidden with God in Christ. Friends, I wish that we could be together in person. I wish that we could sit down across from each other and I could look into your eyes and, uh, if I know you well, put my hands on your shoulders and say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be all right. We're going to get through this. Everything's going to be fine. Your health's going to be fine. Your job's going to be fine. Your body, your soul, you're going to be okay. No, I can't do that. One, I can't get within six feet of you. Uh, but also, I don't know. Uh, I don't know how individual people, how we're going to go through this. Some are, it's going to be hard. It's going to be harder for some than others. But what I do know is that if you're in Christ, it is going to be okay. 
If you are in Christ, you are safe and secure. Like standing on, the, on a porch while a storm rages around you. You might get wet, right? It might get scary. But you are sheltered in the presence of a God who loves you and who gave himself for you. You are sheltered in the secure presence of the righteous and faithful Savior who loves you, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, I do pray that we would know the security and safety of resting in your presence during this time. Lord, while there is a storm raging outside of us, and where, if we're honest, there is a storm raging inside of us, Lord, we pray that more and more we would set our hearts at rest in your love, in your perfect, faithful love for us. Holy Spirit, uh, you are called uh, by Jesus, the Comforter. We pray that you would comfort us during this time. Jesus promised to never leave us or forsake us, but to send a comforter into our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, our comforter, we pray that you would remind us of the good news that is true of us. Remind us of the unshakable, unlosable, faithful love of our God. Remind us that we are clothed and protected in the faithful love of Christ. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would hold us, that we would experience your love and your care uh, as an ark in the midst of this flood, that there we would rest safe and dry and secure. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.